5280 Church Podcast, because everyone needs more hope, genuine community, and a clearer picture of God's love. Hi there, and welcome into 5280 Church Podcast. 5280 Church is a startup in the Berkeley community of Denver, Colorado, and our goal is to create a community that's very open and safe, um, where you can ask your hard questions and not feel judged, where you can come together as friends and family, um, worship together, play together, and just have fun together. In our current series, What the? We are doing just that, diving into difficult questions that we might find about the Bible, about God, and finding the deeper truths. If God is good, why is there evil in the world? Can the Bible be trustworthy? Was Jesus a savior or just a good man? We have a Q&A at the end of each session, and we would invite you to interact with us there on Facebook. Ask your questions, leave a comment, give us a like, follow and share, but most of all, become a part of our community. And without further ado, we answer another question. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into the big question today. How credible is the Bible? Here are some of the things that go on that challenge that, that should raise some question marks for all of us, right? When we talk about the credibility of the Bible, some of the obvious things that we get asked is, wasn't it just written by a bunch of men, right? There's partial truth to that. Yes, God did use human authors to pen the Word of God. Isn't it full of contradictions, You know, that's a good question. Like you read in Romans, it says that you see that a person, uh, we see that a person is justified by faith, it says. And then you go into the book of James and it says, you see that a person is um, justified by works. So there's a contradiction there. Which one's right? But when you look at context, it helps you understand God's looking at humanity and justifies, sees them and justified one way. But as human beings, we look at each other and to find out if we're the real deal, we see them another way. So contradictions are there, but they're good questions, ones we ought to ask. Um, you know, the Gospels, you put them side by side, you see some things there that don't seem to line up. Those are very good questions. You know, another one isn't, uh, you know, most of what we read in the Bible disputed by the sciences, right? You know, the, the, you know as big as creation evolution uh, arguments to as simple as Jesus doing miracles and challenging the laws of nature and physics and and it, they're, they're big, big questions. Those are honest questions that if, even as a believer, I read these things, it's like, wow, that's huge. The book of Jonah, that's a big one for me, you know? Guy's supposed to do what God wants him to do, chooses not to do what, he's, what God wants him to do, gets thrown overboard, gets swallowed by a giant fish. Three days later, Ralph's up on the shore to do ultimately what God asked him to do to begin with. How did he survive in a giant fish for three days? You get on Google, you realize that there have been two other instances of this in the 19th and 20th centuries where this has kind of happened, maybe not to the extent, but it's a big deal. But, you know, it's a big question. It ought to pause and cause us to stop for a minute and ask, you know, the, the, the depths of this truth. And then another one is outdated information. This is a big one within our culture, right? We live in the information age. After all, isn't all of this new information you know, something that would discredit the information that we read in the Bible. And so those are are very valid 
questions that we bring to the table. I don't know about you, but if you know, you're like me, you get on the internet, you read articles, you see things, and it really challenges my perspective, what I perceive to be true about God, what I perceive to be true about humanity. And you know, it's this overwhelming uh, information. I think where we really get into trouble as Christians, and I would speak to our crew, our family, our camp for a moment because that's, that's the family I'm in, is that sometimes we don't do well with information that challenges deeply held convictions and beliefs. We have a hard time stepping back and listening, especially a pastor. I'm really bad about that. Not all pastors, but this, this one. I struggle with that. And so there are times where it just like, you know, it's a punch to the head and the gut, and it's like, man, I don't know about this. And then it begins, all of this information that I perceived, all of the things that I've read into the Bible, some things that I haven't read properly from the Bible, and it becomes this big discovery process that rattles the foundations of my faith. The problem is, is that for most of us as believers, we're afraid of that. And if there's one preaching moment I want to give you today, this is it. This is a soapbox. Stop being afraid of things that challenge your faith. You will have things that test your faith. Jesus promised it. You don't have to be afraid of information. We also don't have to buy into bias, which all of us have. And the biggest challenge for all humanity is to step back and let God speak for himself and to sort through all of the emotions and conflicting ideas and let God take that unsettledness and bring us on a journey where he brings us to a a clearer, deeper understanding of himself and the world around us. So with that being said, you know, how do we answer the question, is the Bible credible? I'm coming from the perspective that I do believe the Bible is a credible source of information. And what I want to do is I want to give you a few things that you can look at. You know, they're not just theological in perspective, but you can look at around you and say, this is why I've come to the conclusion that the Bible is God's truth to us. God's revealing something to us. God is saying things to us. And for me personally, this is why I look to the Bible as a source of wisdom, direction, comfort, conviction, you know, as a way to shape the direction of my life. But I want to do this in a way that if you still have questions, you can at least have a wide open door as the path that you can go into to find whatever truth you're looking for. Because I, I, I would also say this, is that God is big enough to handle the greatest cynic and the greatest skeptic in the world. I would say that. And so come to them. That's the, that's the preaching moment today. Come to them with your questions. Come to them with your struggles. Dig in. Don't just take my word for it or anybody's word for it. Let God speak for himself. So one of the things that makes the Bible unique And first and foremost is, I would say, the unity of its message. This is really, really important. Some of you understand that the Bible is a book of books. There are some people that this is new information, right? When we talk about opening to the book of James to some people that haven't been in Christian culture for a while, they're saying, well, I thought the Bible was a book. Well, it is a book. It's the book of books, and it's 66 different books compiled into what we call the Bible. And it's not all the religious information But there are 66 books that were decided on to be included in the Bible, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, that have 40 different human authors that were used to to, write down what God had revealed, which is kind of a scary thought if you think about it a little bit. 
in three different languages, right? Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, written over a 2,000-year period. So we would look at, you know, the origin of the book of Genesis and Revelation. We compile, you know, 2,000 years, these letters, these, you know, voice that God was speaking was being compiled and written and revealed to humanity. And then we come to a point in culture where we put that together. What's really powerful about this is that it means that the Bible comes from all socioeconomic backgrounds. There were kings, farmers, physicians, scholars, fishermen, servants. They were written in times of war, peace, and prosperity. They were all saying the same thing about some of the most controversial subjects on the planet. And when you start to think about the unity of its message, 2,000 years, 40 very different people 66 different books, different continents, different languages echoing the same thing. That's a big, big truth. Now, some of you are really rooted in conspiracy theories, and those are good, you know, because they do challenge and they push us. And some would say, well, yeah, it's orchestrated. So for 2,000 years, it is possible that we manipulated truth and came up with this unified message, a 2,000-year-old conspiracy kept alive. And we have to say that is plausible. But when you compile that with all of the other evidence that we're going to uncover today, it becomes really overwhelming. One of the things that's really, really powerful about the Word of God is that it can withstand the scrutiny of new information because this becomes the dialogue of the day. So you have this unified message, but when you put it in contemporary culture, you have all this new information and it challenges everything we've ever known. And I would say you probably need to read a few more books other than just the internet. New information has always existed. It's always existed. You want a really boring read unless you're a historian? You should get the, uh, the, the early church fathers, which is, I mean, it takes, I mean, I can't reach the end of the shelf of books, right? And it's these people that wrestled with this new information, right? Because we're talking about 2,000 years of information being compiled, being recorded, and then all of a sudden we're finding out that this new information, there are other voices going on, and it's like, well, what's God and what's not God? Because this group of people says this, this group of people says that, and this group of people says, it, says this. How do we know who's true? How do we know who's right? And when they're going in opposite directions oftentimes. And so then we get into all the fun things where we talk about the Nicene Council and all these guys coming together and the canonization of scripture. And we like to look at it from two perspectives. As Christians, we like to look at it as this holy moment. It was divine. It was very peaceful. And we just looked and said very credibly and peacefully, here's the word of God. Done. Send it out to the world. Run the printing press, which didn't exist then. Let's do it, right? Okay. Or... We have a whole group of people saying it was so confluted and manipulated and that all this other great information was excluded that would totally, you know, open this whole thing wide open. And we're on either side of the camp. What we don't understand is that these were hotly contested public debates. These were open forums. These were, were, were guys and scholars and historians that were wrestling with truth. What is true? How do we know that this person who claims to be Thomas is actually speaking a gospel compared to what we have revealed from this guy who says that he's an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus? How do we know? And so it became eyewitness accounts. It became juries. It became counsels. It became testimonies. And it became overwhelming information. 
And so they're, they're, they're taking all of this information or weighing it out and they come down to a few things. Can we verify the information in history from outside sources? Can we verify the author as an eyewitness account with some reasonable credibility? And somewhere along the line, information that we may like or not like is gonna be left out or included. Because see, the Bible, if you read it, isn't this pretty picture that makes everybody happy when they read it. There's some really offensive things in the Bible, but it was included. And then there are some really crazy and offensive things outside the Bible that were excluded. So to the best of our understanding, using journalistic practices of the day, realizing that there was no information age like we exist in, trying to come to truth. What did God say? Are these people actually speaking on behalf of God? Is a pretty amazing experience when you think about it. And the fact that it has been able to stand the scrutiny of time. As long as God has existed, people have denied his existence. As long as truth has been spoken and miracles have happened, people have doubted the miracles. This is not new. As long as people have struggled with sin, they want to remove their sin from the Bible. Or they want to marginalize it or minimize it or compare it to other sins. These are things that have always existed and the Bible can still stand and withstand the scrutiny of new information. Some of our favorite books, James, First and Second John, First and Second Peter, were on the chopping block. Modern scholarship would not even doubt them today. The information is so overwhelming that these would be the authors that were connected to Jesus and his time, not just through Bible truth, but historical truth. This is how intense these debates were. So, but even so, it leaves room for doubt. But when you add it to historical accuracy, which is the next thing I want to talk to you about, the case gets a little stronger. So historical accuracy, you know, accurate accounts of specific times, places, people, and events that can be verified from sources outside of the Bible itself. This is astounding, right? The Bible talks about the rise and fall of leaders in countries before they were born. And it accurately records that. From outside sources, we know that the 26 kings that we read about in the New Testament, that 3,900-year period is a very accurate picture of what happened historically. The conflicts between nations, leaders, death of leaders, rise of new ones, all of that can be found in extra-biblical sources outside the Bible, which says that there's some good accuracy here. Archaeology. Right? There are things in archaeology that we see that challenge the Bible. There are things that we see in the Bible that challenge archaeology. We talked about this last week a little bit. One of the documentaries that you need to watch on Netflix to help you understand the conflict over bias is Patterns of Exodus in, uh, on Netflix. It's really powerful because archaeology says Exodus didn't happen in the way the Bible says. The Bible says, hey, Egyptian history isn't right. Well, then you get people saying, no, you're stupid. And the other side saying, no, you're stupid. And instead of sitting there looking at the information and saying, what if we put these things together? Can we get a clear picture that wouldn't discredit either group and actually find truth? This is how we found Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way. What if we stop being afraid of what could happen and let God defend himself and put information on the table and let it lead us to truth? It's a really powerful thing. You need to look at it. So you see these things that are really, really powerful 
in history that, that come out. So this means that the Bible has to face scrutiny of outside sources or what's called textual criticism. All right, so how do we know anything in history actually happened? It's a good question. Let me make it a little more easier for you this morning. How do you know that George Washington is real? How do you know he's not a made-up character, you know, throughout all time? And what we tell about this guy, he actually didn't exist. And everything that we know about him is just a made-up lie about the first president of the United States. How do we know George Washington is real? It's a little thing called textual criticism. You take all of the information that you can gather on George Washington from every possible source on the planet, every possible voice you know, that's there, and you put it all together, and you begin to sort through that information and compile it and read it and compare it, and you begin to find out what picture's there. You begin to learn some interesting things about him that you like, and then you begin to see some things that maybe you don't like, and you begin to have that bias surface, right? So you have all this stuff going on, and what do you do? You keep reading, you keep referring, you keep researching to find out what is most likely true about George Washington. Because the truth is, you and I can't verify him the way we do scientifically. Because none of us existed when George Washington exists. None of us are eyewitnesses. So we have to go back in time and get as close to the life of George Washington and eyewitnesses that we can get that are credible sources and hear what they say and see if that matches all the other voices. And then we come back and we can say with certainty, here's what we know about George Washington. And here are the things that we are uncertain about. The Bible lives up to that scrutiny. It's called manuscript evidence. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts that are within 2% error and the errors are in grammar and punctuation mark. All saying the same thing about God. And the interesting thing is, as we find them, they get closer and closer and closer and closer to the actual events making things eyewitness accounts. Right? We don't question Roman, Roman history, right? The rise and fall of Caesar and the Gaelic Wars. You want to know how many copies of manuscripts that we have for the Roman Empire? Ten. Well, we know... This verifiable about Roman history comes from 10 manuscripts. The closest to the actual events that they happen is a thousand years. Bible manuscripts get within a few hundred years, and the Old Testament within 30 to 60 years in most New Testament accounts. Pretty impressive information. So it can withstand the scrutiny, dig in. Doesn't mean that it's not hard to believe. So now you have this unified message verifiable from outside sources. But here's a real clincher because it's one thing to record history. Lots of religious writings do that and do it pretty well. It's a whole other thing to predict it. This is what begins to set the Bible apart. Prophetic voice. Prophetic voice. God speaking about things that will happen in the future before they happen. That's really hard to believe, isn't it? Well, let me just give you a few. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible. There's a lot of them that deal with Jesus and, you know, let's say if we take just 50 of the prophecies with Jesus, it's pretty impressive to have 50 prophecies about who he is, where he come from, when he would be born, how he would die, he would be the Messiah, his identity. And you're thinking, well, you know, we can still manipulate that. But if you take 25 of those, half of those 25, uh, and say that they deal with how people would respond, <laughs> 
to these events? Well, that, that becomes really interesting. So the Bible gives great detail as to when he would be born, when he would die, how he would die, what would happen, how people would respond hundreds and sometimes a thousand years, 2,000 years before people and events and actions actually happened. <laughs> That's really hard to swallow. Um, so if you take just eight prophecies, right? The Bible teaches us, you know, uh, about... Uh, 2,000 years before Jesus existed, that he would come from a very specific bloodline in Jewish culture, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, which is not Ishmael, not Esau. They didn't take any of the forks in the family tree at all, um, you know, which is a pretty impressive thing. That the sign of his birth is that would be like any other, that he would be born of a virgin, which is, that's really hard to believe, right? It just scientifically doesn't add up. 700 years before that, that prophecy was made. Now, if we could, um, you know, if you think about it, how crazy that is, if you're going to manipulate history, you just have to find a virgin that comes from Bethlehem at the right time from the right lineage that miraculously would claim that she was you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit and was about to give birth to the Messiah. You know, and that's a sarcastic way of saying that's a pretty ridiculous thing to think about hundreds or a thousand years before it actually happens. It also says that the Messiah would enter the temple. This is really important because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It puts a timeline on when this prophecy actually had to happen which meant that these actions in his life had to match when he was born, had to match history and other prophecies. So it's not just 50 that has to get right. It has to match the whole cacophony of information that we see in the Bible, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies, speaking of time and place and location, specific events. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, and that silver would be thrown on the temple floor. Again, had to happen before 70 AD. So now it's locking into a very specific time and life of time. That... Um, that lots would be cast for his clothes when he was crucified, that he would actually be crucified. They didn't use the word crucifixion in the Old Testament. It talked about being pierced in his hands and feet, his flesh being ripped off of his body. It was talking about Roman flogging and crucifixion, something that did not exist. It was a thousand years before describing how he would die, how the Messiah would die. These are big, big things. And that is said that he would be raised from the dead. Also, very difficult to believe, humanly speaking. So, big truths, big question marks, things that would be nearly impossible to fake has to happen within a certain time in a certain way. And so, you have to look at it and say, can the Bible withstand Scrutiny in this area. So let's, let's look at this. It can handle the scrutiny of science and pro of probability. Does anybody know what the science of probability is? It's a combination of statistics and computer-generated models that predict future activities, right? Our insurance models all are based on the science of probability. Just about any... I, there was someone here last week that actually does that, takes information and tries to predict what's going to happen within markets and business. This is, this is a big, big deal, so there's a science behind it. Can the Bible, prophecy specifically, withstand the science of probability? If you took those eight prophecies that I just listed off about Jesus, the likelihood of that happening would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros. That's a big, big number. For one person to fill all the, uh, fulfill all eight of those prophecies, just eight of those prophecies, 
The equivalent of that, uh, a, a person that I would encourage you to get, is get this book called Science Speaks by Peter Stoner. It's really, really powerful. Another one, Jesus Christ the Messiah, was written in the mid-90s. It takes the science of probability and applies it to prophecy. It's a really interesting read. But Peter Stoner said the equivalent of that would to take silver dollars, you know, 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars. It would, t- it would cover the entire state of Texas in two feet of, of silver dollars. You take one of those silver dollars, put a red or, or X on it with a Sharpie, just drop it somewhere in the middle of Texas, blindfold one individual, ask them to wander around Texas and find that one silver dollar. And the likelihood of them doing it for the first time is one to 10 and the 17th power. That's what that would have to happen for one person to fulfill eight prophecies. Science of probability. It would be impossible to fake this. Does it make it any easier to believe rising from the dead, virgin birth? No. Does it make it easy to dismiss? Blindfolded person wandering around Texas picking up the one silver dollar and two feet of silver dollars the first time, it's not easy to dismiss. There's a tension that's supposed to exist. Is the Bible credible? Yes. If the Bible is a credible source of information, what does it have to say and how should we respond? A few things real quick. The Bible says this, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. The Bible is a credible source of information. God wants us to know who he is and how we can know him. That's one of the purposes of the Bible. Who is God? The fact that God would introduce himself and we can know him. The second thing is, All scripture is breathed out by God. This is where we get the idea of inspiration and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In other words, God has spoken and he's sharing with us who he is and what he desires for us and how the world can be restored through him. The interesting thing is, is that God, God's inspiration isn't locked down to a couple of verses that most Christians can recognize. There are 4,000 claims of inspiration. God breathing out his truth to those 40 authors. 4,000 references in the Bible saying, I am speaking to humanity through these people. With all of the information that you can push against to see if they're true, God doesn't ask us to check our brains. But he does ask us to check our hearts. And that's where it gets conflicting. Most of us reject the Bible because we don't like what it asks of us. We don't like that teaching, correction, reproof, and instruction. The Bible also says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's convicting. It will challenge and transform the way we think. We can't read the Bible and apply it to our life because at some point it will make us uncomfortable and our life won't be enough to contain the Bible. It's it's the difference of standing on top of the Bible and making ourselves the editor of it or living under our Bible saying God is the one that speaks through his word to my life. 
And the Bible also says, be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. Who are you deceiving? Yourselves. By not doing the word. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. It's like reading it and forgetting who you are. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. See, if the Bible is God's voice to us, then it would do us good to apply our lives to it. And I think that's the difference for a lot of us in this culture. Because see, the way Christians act sometimes, what we say we believe, really is more about taking God's word and editing our own worldview or complementing our own worldview. And there's no power in that. But when somebody looks at God and says, what does God say? And that's who I want to be. That's what I want to do. Well, that's partially uncomfortable it's completely challenging and very transforming, not just for you, but everyone around you. The Bible isn't an ordinary book. It's not meant to pick the stories that we like and critique. It's meant to ask questions, search out, and apply our lives to it and see what God does with His voice, His message to all humanity.